Well, we'll be continuing in Exodus this morning, beginning at chapter 3. If you are using a pew Bible, you should find that on page 46, I believe. Page 46. We'll be going from Exodus 3, 1 through 4, 17. So I'm just going to read chapter 3, and we'll get to chapter 4 when we get to our third point. Exodus 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look. God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the the misery of my people in Egypt, I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in the middle of the 18th century, A certain young man was attending Yale Divinity School, back when it actually was a divinity school, and he was a full-time divinity student. 
He desired to be trained for the pastoral ministry, and he showed incredible gifting and promise. He was well into his studies and just thriving. But one day, an unguarded remark got him expelled. And talking with a friend about a particular professor, he made some snipey comment about, that man is about as spiritual as the chair I'm sitting in. Someone overheard the comment, reported it, and he was expelled. He later repented, asked for forgiveness. He admitted that it was a wicked thing to say, and yet he remained expelled. That began one of the lowest, most depressing, and most discouraging moments in David Brainerd's life. For those who don't know, David Brainerd was the almost son-in-law of Jonathan Edwards. He would go on to agonize over the elements of indwelling sin in his life during that period and, and later on as well. Uh, he had a diary that he kept very meticulous records, and Jonathan Edwards would later annotate it and publish it under the title, The Life and Diary of David Brainerd. I recently started working through it, and I can tell you already, this will be on my recommended book reading list at the end of the year. It is deeply humbling. Uh, it is a fantastic book. At one point, Brainerd is grieving of his offering such dead and cold service to the living God of how he continually falls short. He wrote about considering his great unfitness for the work of ministry and of his present deadness. He says his total inability to do anything for the glory of God. And yet, he knew that he was called. Well, he had days of relief and joy and also many sorrows. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you've had some failure in your past that keeps you in a state of feeling unable to be of use for God. Maybe seasons of failures. Maybe health. Maybe there is something that cannot even quite be explained, but it's haunted you. It haunts you now. It makes you feel inadequate to be a Christian, to be used of God. Well, as with David Brainerd and as with us sometimes, this, I think, is what is taking place in the life of Moses. Remember, it's been 40 years that have passed as we turn the page in this chapter. 40 years since he attempted to deliver God's people in his own strength. And he went from being a pseudo-deliverer to a murderer. 40 years. He, he thought, according to Acts 7 in Hebrews, we saw that he, he knew he had been called to deliver God's people. And he thought going out to do so, the people would get behind him. But instead, they just mocked him. Forty years as a shepherd. Now, remember, he was raised by Egyptians. Egyptians hated shepherds. Of course, he's not an Egyptian, but 40 years, he's gone from being a prince of Egypt to a despised, lowly shepherd. Perhaps he convinced himself, you know, that calling was not really a calling after all. You know, now he's married with two kids. He'd settled down in the burbs, or rather the backwaters of Midian. How could a murderer become a deliverer? How could God redeem such a one as that? Well, we don't know exactly if Moses wrestled in precisely those right ways, but it seems that this text today is going to hint to those things. And God is going to renew his calling upon his servant Moses. But Moses is so haunted by his past failings that only a meeting on the mountain with God himself will be able to shake him from his lethargy. So the sermon title this morning is The Meeting on the Mountain. We'll walk through it in the three points you see up there. 
And then here is the argument. God's aseity means he calls us for his purposes, not for our ability. God's aseity, I'll define that word in a minute, means he calls us for his purposes, not for our ability. I will circle back to aseity, I promise. Let me show you how we get there. So first, the calling of a deliverer. This is God's explicit call. We know he already was called in some sense. And this is the famous Sunday school story. If you've grown up around the church at all, you know of the burning bush. Doubtless you've seen flannel graphs of this. But more precisely, it is a bush burning and not being consumed. Uh, Because the bush itself isn't burning. It's just a flame that envelops but does not consume the bush. Moses is intrigued, and he turns aside to see this sight, and we would be too. As he does so, God himself speaks to him from the midst of this bush, burning but not being consumed, and says, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. Well, now we instantly have a problem. What exactly is holy ground? What is holy? I wish we had the time to really dig into this. The simplest answer you can give is, well, holy means set apart. Well, that's true enough. Uh, But when God describes himself as holy, 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 although it is true that he is transcendent, he is separate, 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 mm, there's more going on than just that. Uh, God's holiness becomes something of a a summary of all of his attributes in some sense. Uh, It it speaks of, yes, moral purity as it's worked out in the book of Leviticus. It incorporates his perfections of righteousness and justice. Ah, yes, But holiness is a really hard thing to define. This is why in R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, he begins chapter 3 by saying, now I'm on a third chapter of a book about holiness, and I've yet to give you a definition. Because it's a little trickier than you might think. By the way, if you have not read R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God, grab a friend or two and read it this year. If you have read it, read it again with some more friends. It is so important. But in essence, God's holiness requires that those things around him also be holy, set apart. And that's revealed to the fact that Moses has to remove his shoes. But the image of the bush here is also going to unpack holiness and connect it to that other fancy word I used, aseity. I see the fire here, picture the bush with me now. The the bush is on fire, but not on fire. There's flame enveloping it, but not consuming it. Quite literally, the Hebrew is just, it's two participles. It's burning, but not consuming. See, normally, fire requires fuel. That's what fire is so deadly, because it can make a fuel out of almost anything. It consumes. But here, God pictures himself. He appears as a fire it needs no fuel. Isn't this what can happen later when God in the pillar of fire, the fire that needs no fuel? It pictures God's holy fire, but also his aseity. Now that, that comes from the Latin ase. It simply means this. God is from himself. His self-sufficiency, his independence, his self-existence It is a doctrine that has been lost, particularly in the 20th century. Uh, A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy, uh, he gets into this. and He writes this about the doctrine of a Sadie being lost in the 20th century. He says, 20th century Christianity has put God on charity. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves 
that we find it quite easy to believe that we are necessary to God. And Tozer goes on to note, and part of the reason for this is we tend to be disquieted by the thought of one who is responsible to no one, who will not appear before the bar of our reason, nor submit to our curious inquiries. It requires a great deal of humility. So we save face by thinking God down to our level, or at least to a level where we can manage him. The doctrine of God's aseity, the fire that needs nothing to fuel it, his self-sufficiency, his holy separateness is meant to shock us, which is why Moses hides his face. This is why Tozer goes on to talk about how God's aseity needs to really come back in our discussion of missions he says he fears modern missions, it was basically a bunch of thousands of young people entering into Christian service with this idea that God needed our help to deliver him from his embarrassing situation that his love got himself into. The doctrine of aseity says, God doesn't need you. He didn't need the bush to fuel his fire. And here is the paradox. He doesn't need Moses to deliver his people. Oh, make no mistake, God chooses and uses Moses, but he doesn't need him. That's the mystery of God's calling. God chooses and calls people for his purposes. But that means his choice is never based on anything outside of himself, because he's from himself. His choice is only based off his purposes. As when God called Abraham, he didn't call Abraham because he was swell. Joshua tells us Abraham was a moon-worshipping pagan when he called him. God called him for his purposes. And here, God calls Moses for his purposes. And God says in this section, the God of aseity, the God who needs nothing, says to Moses, I'm calling you to use you. And I'm the God of your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm going to send you to go and deliver my people because their sufferings have come up before me. Now, I've reminded us in this study that God prophesied all this was going to happen. So none of this is an accident. This is not God playing chess. He's not responding. This is God's plan unfolding exactly as he said. In the mystery of his sovereign will, he now has picked the time and picked the man Moses to go and be this deliverer. But don't let the doctrine of aseity, the fancy name, make you think it's not deeply practical. I think this is why Moses is later called the most humble man to ever live. Because he is going to dwell in the presence of God. And if you dwell for so many years in the presence of a God who doesn't need you, what does that do to you? It reminds you he's, he's everything. He's all. I don't add anything to this equation. Moses is constantly before the face of God, before the fire that needs no fuel. And so Moses is growing in humility throughout his life. As a Christian, I wonder if you want to grow in humility, make it a lifelong habit to meditate on God's aseity, his self-sufficiency. Meditate on the mystery that the God who needs nothing chooses to call and use people for his purposes. As members of a local church, remember regularly there's no one person, no one ministry, no one program that is essential. This church has been around 143 years. Pastors have come and gone. Members have lived and died. God continues on. If this church should ever close, God will continue his work. He doesn't need us. His plan is moving on 
just as he desires. God's aseity means he calls us for his purposes, not for our ability. Well, that's what I wonder, maybe if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you hear this and say, well, I mean, this God, he's like, he's this big, huge God. He doesn't need any of us. I just, why would I want to relate to him? Why would I want to engage in such a one? Maybe you even grew up around Christianity and yet you have not really responded to his call. I, I would encourage you to think a couple things. First of all, uh, God's aseity means he doesn't need me to tell you about him. Uh, Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth proclaims his handiwork. Day to day they pour forth speech and the words have gone to the end of the world. So God doesn't need me to tell you about him. You already know about him. In fact, Romans 1 says that you know God so well based off of creation that you'll be held to account. That any attempt you make to say you don't know him means you are suppressing the truth about God that you know innately, intuitively, because creation reveals it. And yet, God, in his mystery of his call, uses means. And one of the means he's using is for me to say, a friend, if you have not committed to Christ, come. He's calling to you. If you have questions about how to respond, I'd love to talk to you, but I also have to offer a warning to you. Friend, stalling, responding to God's call is a dangerous place to be because we humans are remarkably capable of numbing ourselves when things get familiar. Take Moses as example A. Moses is walking along, sees a bush burning without being consumed, drops everything, hears God call out to him, covers his face, has a conversation with God, and in 10 more verses, he's going to be arguing with God through the bush. It didn't take long for him to be like, well, this isn't that special. Friends, we are that talented at hardening ourselves to remarkable truths. Let me give you just one example. The brightest physicists and mathematicians have known for decades the statistical impossibility of this universe existing. Just statistically, it can't, it can't happen. They keep claiming this big bang. Statistically, it doesn't work that way. Uh, Francis Collins one time mentioned these 15 cosmological constants. And he said that they're so finely tuned that if any one of those constants were off by a millionth of a part, some of them by a millionth, millionth of a part, the universe doesn't exist. There've been no galaxies, no stars, no planets, no people. But here's the thing. Even though the math is clear, there's no question. Brilliant people deny God. So famous atheist Richard Dawkins, he's a brilliant scientist. But he sees the cosmological constants. And you know what his response is? Well, it's possible that there's trillions of universes. And if there's trillions of universes, then all of a sudden the statistics work out. Notice what he's just done. He's imagined that maybe there really are trillions of universes we just don't know about. And he takes that on faith. Instead of just looking what is right before his eyes. Moses sees a bush burning, but not being consumed. It says, go. And Moses' response is going to be, but man, life is hard. I just, I don't have what I need. And God, the God of all sufficiency, is saying, why do you need anything? I'm here. I'm calling you. Go. So again, friend, if you're here, maybe you're exploring Christianity, God is calling to you. But be careful that you don't harden yourself to his call. It doesn't take long to go from being in awe of a bush to arguing with a bush. Well, 
learning from Moses' example will continue in our second point. Our second point, actually, we see two of Moses' first excuses. We see how God answers those excuses by revealing himself as, the second point, the God of the calling. The God of the calling. Look at verses 11 through 22 again. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders I will perform among them. And after that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver, gold, for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, so you will plunder the Egyptians. Well, we get Moses' first excuse it is, God, I'm a nobody. I mean, who am I to go? I'm a nobody. And God's response is, I know. I know you're a nobody. It's got nothing to do with you. I'm the self-sufficient God of aseity. I don't need you, but I chose you, and I'm sending you. It doesn't matter that you're a nobody. It just matters that I sent you. And to prove that you're being a nobody doesn't matter, God says, I'm going to give you a sign. You are going to take the people, and you are going to bring them out, and you are going to worship me on this mountain. Now notice that for a second. It's rather strange. God gives Moses a sign that's in the future. Normally aren't signs not in the, they're like right in front of you. So to give Moses a sign in the future, it does a couple things. First of all, it shows Moses, you have to trust me. I'm giving you a sign. I'm guaranteeing you this is going to happen. Remember, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm the one who's been faithful all these years, who's doing exactly what I told Abraham I was going to do. Trust me, I'm going to let you go. I mean, just what grabs me about this scene, though, is God's talking to him from a burning bush. What other sign do you need? <laughs> Look at the bush, Moses. I'm right here. If I can do this, I can deliver you from Egypt. But he doesn't do that. He gives him a forward sign, so that way he will have to trust. This future sign, though, doesn't seem to pacify Moses. And so he says, oh, okay, so fine. Maybe you're awesome. But what if they ask me what your name is? What am I supposed to do with that? And... Now, the opinions go all over the place. It's really surprising, actually, how many different ways the, the commentators try to understand Moses' question, what it means of the name. So I'm just going to boil them down. I think this is the, the answer. Uh, let, me use, let me use Romeo and Juliet as, as an example. Juliet famously says, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. 
In other words, Juliet's saying, the name doesn't matter. It's the essence of the thing that matters. But in the Bible, that's not true. In the Bible, names matter. Names communicate character, nature, essence. So Abraham means he's a father of a multitude or father of many nations. Abel, his name means vapor or fleeting, just like his life. So I think at least part of, or one of the central aspects of, of Moses saying, oh, who, who is it that uh, is sending me? What's your name? What's your character? What are you like? We've been 400 years in slavery, God. Who, who are you? Can we trust you? And most English Bibles have God responding as saying, I am who I am. And then God repeats, I am has sent me to you. And he goes on to remind them. Well, what does it mean that God's name is I am that I am? Part of the answer will come later in the book of Exodus. But another part of it, which is here in our passage, is this is repeating the same truth of the burning bush. It's that God is the God of aseity. I am that I am. Uh, it, it could actually be in the future tense. I will be who I am, who I will be. God is saying he can't be defined from anywhere else, anything else. He can't be compared to anything else. Uh, he is self-existent. See, unlike the gods of Egypt, who are all connected to something in nature, God says, well, there's no way to connect me. There's no way to define me. There's no way to compare me. And so God repeats his name in verse 15. Now, the NIV renders it the capital L-O-R-D. You're probably familiar with this. When you're reading the Old Testament, you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's, it's translating the Hebrew letters. We translate them Y-H-W-H. It's often been pronounced Yahweh. And Moses is to tell them Yahweh, the God of his father, sent them. And then God says, this is his name, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. But what's interesting is, as early as 300 BC, there became a custom among Jews to start reading the biblical text, and when they got to YHWH, to substitute the word Adonai, which means Lord or Master. As a matter of fact, that's where we get the word Jehovah, Jehovah's Witnesses. They take the YHWH and they insert the vowel sounds from Adonai, Yahovah. That's where that comes from. But did you catch the sad irony there? God told Moses, this is my name, and this is the name that you are to know me by from generation to generation, forever. And yet, there came a point when the Jews said, oh, we need to not say that name. I think this is an instructive little bit of history. Friends, we can sometimes think we are better at protecting God's honor and name than he is. We can try to improve God's ways. Oh, no doubt they were trying to do it to, to honor the name. But God told Moses, this is the name you will know me by forever, from generation to generation. And in the name of venerating the name, the name was lost. Let me apply this recently. Uh, in our more recent history, there's been a claim to do the same kind of thing, to try to improve God's ways. It's gone like this. It's what we need is a personal relationship, not religion. There's this false dichotomy. What we need is a relationship with God. We don't need that religion stuff. We don't need that theology and all those things. We just need a personal love relationship. Well, friends, let me, let me just image this for you this way. Imagine we meet for the first time. 
and I say to you, oh, my wife and I, I just, I love my wife. We have the most amazing love relationship. It's just, it's wonderful. We just, oh, there's so much love. We just love each other. It's great. It's beautiful. So, just a lovely relationship. And you go, oh, that's great. I can't wait to meet her. You know, what's she look like? What are her hobbies? If I respond, I, I, I don't really know what she looks like. Her eye color. I can't really think of it. Her, her hair color. Generic? I don't know. What are her hobbies? I, I guess I just, I don't know what her hobbies are, other than me, because we have such a loving relationship. You would rightly say I'm delusional. Notice, if I don't have propositional knowledge about my wife, to claim we have a loving relationship is deluded at best. If I have no concrete, personal knowledge, do I really have a relationship? So friends, the, 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 the wonderful fortune cookie theology of we need a personal relationship, not religion, is just that. It's a fortune cookie. There is no relationship with God without a knowledge of who he is. There is no way to truly love God and grow in our love of God with no knowledge. So just as protecting the divine name led to losing it, sometimes our pursuing a relationship can cause us to actually lose it. So Christian, let me ask you this. Practically, boots on the ground. How are you going to look to grow your knowledge of God and your love relationship with God this year? How will you learn more about the one that you seek to treasure? Of course, reading the Bible, yes, and studying it, yes. Oh, those are wonderful things. Praise God. But remember, Titus 2.1, tells the, Paul tells the young pastor to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Notice what that means. Sound doctrine means there's a body of doctrine that is coherent, that is sound, and we're supposed to teach what accords with it. In other words, the Bible itself charges us, commands us to understand a whole, a big picture, a summary. Uh, this is why uh, the first of the month when we take the Lord's Supper on those services, we read through the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, these wonderful summaries of the gospel. Uh, I've been meaning to start it this e at the evening services this year, but other things have providentially kept me from doing so. Uh, the evening service, I'm going to start working through the Heidelberg Catechism at the beginning of the prayer service as a wonderful way of growing our knowledge about God, thinking about him. Because remember, Jesus commanded us to love God with all our mind also. So Christian, again, grab a copy of Sproul's book. Start there. Grab a friend. Deepen your love with your mind of God. Moses is to explain, to teach the divine name to the people. He is to tell them the all-sufficient God, the self-sufficient, the unchanging, the I am that I am God, who called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He has come, and he is delivering us. And then he's supposed to go to the elders, and he's supposed to tell the elders that divine name, that Yahweh is delivering you. And then he's supposed to go to Pharaoh and say, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, is delivering us. And they're to make a three-day journey. But God says, but Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. I'm going to have to work. I'm going to have to let him out. Again, God is the God of aseity. He's the one who's going to deliver. He doesn't need us. 
So we recount this little story here. So God is, is encouraging Moses after his first two excuses. Uh, there's one last thing we need to see here. Did you catch what verse 21 says? It's, it's a stunning little thing. And easily look past. Verse 21, God says, And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go ever empty-handed. Every woman asks her neighbor and any woman living in her house, and she'll give you silver and gold and all those things. In other words... God is sovereignly able to change the heart, will, desires of human beings. I will change the Egyptians. Uh, here's many, just many other verses we could list. Here's two. Proverbs 16, 1, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from Yahweh. Proverbs 21, 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he wills. Notice then. In the Bible, the human will is not autonomous. It is not this thing that exists outside of God. We need to make sure our definition of the human free will aligns with the Bible. And here, God says, I'm going to change their will. I'm going to change the Egyptians. And they're going to give you stuff. So see, friend, if your definition of free will excludes God's changing people's hearts and will then I want to gently challenge you. Your definition is unbiblical. In the Bible, God changes wills. He changes hearts. He's going to do it to the Egyptians here. He just said it. And I know that raises all sorts of philosophical questions for us. Well, if God can change human hearts, then why doesn't he always do it? Or if he does it sometimes, why doesn't he do it other times? Oh, of course. But friends, our job is to submit to the text, not to stand over the text and tell it what it can say. And what God said is, I'm going to change their hearts. I'm going to make them favorable. And they're going to give you stuff because you're going to go out loaded down with silver and gold. So see, we have to be careful. We do not protect the divine name to the point of losing it or protect God in such a way where we end up saying things to try and protect him that aren't true of him. Whatever we do, we dare not substitute our understanding of the divine name or of God and put it back upon him and say, this is what he has to be. No, God is who he is. He is the I am. And it is precisely his self-sufficiency, his aseity that Tozer said makes us uncomfortable, which is about to make Moses uncomfortable in our last point as well. And that's why our last point is the excuses of the called. Look at the first nine verses of chapter four. First, Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. And the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord... Yahweh, the God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. Moses put his hand inside his cloak and took it out, and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. 
So uh, God has called Moses. Moses has given his first two excuses. Here we find uh, his, his testing of God, you may say. Let's do this. We'll say the first ones are not excuses. They're more so his questions. Now we're going to get three excuses here in chapter 4. The first excuse is, uh, what if they don't believe me? So, okay, you've told me what your name is. What if they don't believe me? The irony here is delicious. You're supposed to see it. Moses is the one who's not believing God. The whole point is God is talking to him from a burning bush. And Moses, and he says, you're going to go. You're going you're gonna to say this. This is going to happen. Pharaoh's going to say no, but it's okay. I'm going to win. Well, what if they don't believe me? You're supposed to laugh. It's meant to grab you. Moses is certain they won't believe because he doesn't believe and he's looking at the burning bush. Oh, sure, he believes insofar as God is speaking to him, but he doesn't trust. He is not trusting God beyond what he sees in him in the bush. And God's patience is on full display. So he gives Moses three signs. He says, here's three signs to help answer the issue if they don't believe you. The first one is, throw your staff. It turns into a snake. And he, Moses runs from it like most normal people would. And then he grabs it and takes it back. The hand in and out of the jacket, leprosy and knot. And then the third sign he's going to have to get to when he's in Egypt. Because he has to take water out of the Nile and he pours it out and it'd be blood. So three signs. Well, these three signs are all polemics, commentators say. They're arguments. They're, they're picking a fight with the gods of Egypt. Uh, see, we have, we have all sorts of these ancient little things that have come through archaeology where the Egyptians uh, loved to boast and they could turn a, a, a staff into a snake and they could do magical things with staffs. And so the first thing God says is, well, here, take your staff. You can do some magical stuff too. In other words, the idea is there's nothing special in the gods of Egypt. Yahweh can do that too. So that's the first one with the snake. And then, of course, later during the plagues, Moses' snake is going to eat their snakes anyway. So um, God's snake is better. Uh, but then the second one is leprosy. And we think, well, why leprosy? Well, in those days, Egypt was very unclean. And so leprosy was pretty rampant. Uh, and so God is showing him he is sovereign over leprosy. This is a rampant disease, killing people. And God's like, leprous, not, leprous, not. He's just showing him he's sovereign over skin conditions. And then the third one is the Nile. And the Nile is so key to the life of Egypt. Uh, there's three different gods who are connected to the Nile. And so by Moses just taking some of this water, which represents their three gods, and pouring it out, making it blood, shows that once again, God is sovereign over the Nile as well. So the whole signs, the three signs, is God's sovereignty over the gods of Egypt. And that will come out in the plagues as well. Uh, but Moses still isn't buying it. Look at verses 10 through 12. So then Moses said to the Lord, well, pardon your servant, Lord. Uh, I've never been eloquent neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and teach you what to say. So the first excuse is, what if they don't believe me? The second excuse, we might summarize it like this, but, but God, I don't talk goodly. That's basically Moses' excuse. And just as God's response to his first excuse was, I'm sovereign over staffs and over infections and over rivers and over all the gods, I'm sovereign over humans. I'm the one who makes them blind or see, deaf or hear. I'm the one who creates all these things. I am the sovereign potter, and I will form the clay however I see fit. 
It doesn't matter that you can't speak. I can teach you how to speak. And I think it was worth pausing for a moment of application here. I wonder, friend, if you're anything like me, you're familiar with this scene in your own life of making excuses to God of why I can't do this or, or why I can't quite do this. We have a long list of inadequacies that don't quite work for us. And maybe, like Moses, you think, you know, I just, I'm too young or I'm too old. I'm too tired or I'm too busy. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm just, I'm not smart enough or, or, or I just have too much going on or whatever that was. Maybe you just think, I just, I'm a lesser part of the body. I, I don't, I, I, that's just not quite how the Lord's going to use me. I'm like an appendix, you know, that part that is sort of needed. Well, Paul would strenuously disagree. In 1 Corinthians 12, he, he talks about the members of a local church as parts of a body. And he says, even those members that have the least amount of honor are still very important to God. They're key and central to his purposes. So, friend, maybe you feel physically or, or mentally or emotionally weak and exhausted and, and incapable of being used by God. Well, friend, can you be persistent in prayer? Uh, later in this book, we're going to see one of Moses' greatest strengths is not so much his leadership, but his interceding. He's interceding for God's people. So, friend, what if you just committed yourself to be a prayer warrior for this church, for God's work in Portland and the world? What if you prayed through the membership directory instead of once a month, do it once a week, once a day? Maybe you're physically unable to do all sorts of things you used to do, but maybe you have plenty of time to pray for the ministries of the word to flourish here at Bethany, for the ladies' Bible studies to continue to produce ladies that love God's word, for the men's Bible studies to grow, for evangelism in the neighborhood, for the workers over here at Bethany Village. Friends, we believe God does his work through his word and prayer. But we also need the prayer part to carry on. I'm praying God will raise up many prayer warriors. Those people who maybe they feel they have no other gifting, but they can pray. They can intercede. They can ask that God would be glorified, that he would be pleased to see many people come to know him. Oh, friend, even appendixes have a purpose in God's body. Well, after reassuring Moses again, God repeats the same command, go. That's twice God said, go. What should Moses do? Go. But he's got one more excuse. Look at verse 13. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. And then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother, Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and he'll be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. And he will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take the staff in your hand so that you can perform the signs with it. Uh, unfortunately, most English translations uh, say it this way. as Moses saying, you know, please send someone else. The Hebrew is far more vague. Uh, we, might, we might render the Hebrew like this. It's, please, Lord, send now by the hand of whom you will send. It, it's kind of a, a begrudging acquiescence. It, it's, in other words, it's, it's Moses saying, well, Lord, I mean, you said you're sovereign over the gods and over the snakes and over the, the river and you're sovereign over the parts of the body. You're sovereign, so I guess, you know, if you're going to send me, send me. It's a, okay, I guess. Moses, in effect, is, is, is saying, okay, 
Have your will. What will be, will be. Now, I opened with the diary of David Brainerd for a purpose, to come back to here. Because he, too, like Moses in this moment, felt completely unfit after he was expelled. He grieved over his failure and his expulsion. He knew he'd been called, but now he wasn't going to be able to be trained. And yet, he ended up being mentored by another, and he would go on to be a missionary to American Indians. And he would saw God do wonderful things for those Indians. Now, at the age of 29, he contracted tuberculosis. Jonathan Edwards' daughter was his nurse. They got engaged, but he died at the age of 29, 29 years old. His Life and Diary by Jonathan Edwards, that has annotated it, like I said, inspired generations of missionaries. William Carey, both the British and London Missionary Societies, Jim Elliott, whose most stories, his story most Christians know, they all attribute their work to him in his diary. Some of it he didn't even want published, and Edwards published it and then realized later, oops, he didn't want that published. Moses here is feeling like that, inadequate, incapable. Lord, do what you're going to do. But see, God's aseity means that he calls for his purposes, not for our ability. And that's why God is calling Moses. Now, we'll see how that call plays out in the rest of the book. But friends, just again, I, I think it is such an important thing for us to think on is no matter what God might be calling you to, he is the one who supplies the power to accomplish what he's calling you to. It's not about you feeling good or talking good or anything else. And look at God's fatherly kindness. How about this? Aaron's on his way. He can talk for you. He'll take care of it. It's, you almost hear the dad in God's voice. And don't forget the staff. You're going to need that staff, remember, to do the thing. Just take the staff. You read it there in the text. It's right there. There's this fatherly kindness that you see. Well, there's one last thing I want us to draw our attention to. I know we're going a little long. But did you happen to catch that fascinating comment, which then all of a sudden passes away? Moses says, send now, you know, whomever you're going to send, God. And it says, and Yahweh's anger burned against Moses. And then nothing happens. Have you ever seen that before? This just grabbed me reading this passage. This, well, it was two weeks ago when I first started reading this. And just saying, look at this. It's like God's anger burns. Yahweh, the I am, the I say God, his anger is burning against him. And then, okay, I'm sending your brother. What is that all about? I think the answer is only found by reading the rest of the book. Exodus, but also the Bible. Because notice what's just happened. Moses is where? In the wilderness of Midian, approaching the base of Mount Sinai. And he has just failed three tests. Later in this book, Israel is going to be going to and from Mount Sinai in the wilderness of Midian, and they're going to fail three tests. Moses is kind of like a representative Israelite here. And God's anger is showing that he has to respond because he is holy. He must respond to unbelief with anger. And yet, God's fatherly kindness is not based off of Moses's succeeding. It's not based off of Israel succeeding because none of them could do it. But in Matthew 4, we, leave of, we read of another son who had three trials in the wilderness. In all three tests, he passed, quoting from Israel's wilderness wanderings. 
In those tests, Jesus was tested by the devil. And each temptation was an attempt to short-circuit the cross, to short-circuit God's call for Jesus' life. Just do it this way. Just don't do that. In each test, each time Jesus was tempted, he answers the serpent with the word of God. So see here then, I think, is the point. This little passing comment of how the Lord's anger burned against Moses and yet seems to subside so quickly. It shows us how the holy God must respond to unbelief and yet how God in his fatherly, gracious kindness continues to provide for his children when they fail in unbelief. All because one day, the wrath that Moses should have taken here was drunk entirely by Jesus on the cross. See, friends, that's the Christian gospel. The God of aseity, the self-sufficient, self-existent God who needs nothing, sent himself to do everything for those who would trust in him. And so as we sing and have sung last week, we need that one who will stand before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. Here is Moses, shielded by the blood of the one who was to later come. What an encouraging word that is for us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the reminder that you don't need us. Because again, it helps us to see how we have such security and hope in you. The one who provided everything we needed in your son. And we thank you for that today. In Jesus' name, amen.